be the third chapter where Paul is going to be dealing with a very specific question that was asked him. Uh, So you might recall the book of 1 Corinthians divides into two uh, unequal halves, but two halves. Uh, The first half is Paul dealing with bad reports that he received about the church. Uh, But in chapter 7, it changes to Paul answering specific questions that they've sent him. Uh, And then in chapter 8, the question that he begins to answer is this, uh, concerning things sacrificed to idol. And the question is, Should the people, the Christians that were living in the city of Corinth, be allowed to purchase and eat or in in some way be given this meat that's been sacrificed to idols and eat it? Uh, So Paul's answer is yes, but. In other words, what he's going to say is, you have the freedom to eat that meat, and that meat is no different than any other meat because we know that there's really only one God, and so if they believe they're sacrificing to some other God besides the God, uh, they're really uh, as sacrificing to something invisible, something that's not true. So yes, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, but. And then he's going to give us these principles. He's given us two up to this point, and he's going to give us a couple of more this morning. He's going to lay out these principles uh, by which they should decide how to make this decision beyond their freedoms. And the application goes well beyond just the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, The application would go to how we would deal with any freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ, how we respond to any of those freedoms, those things that we have the freedom to do as believers in Jesus Christ, but maybe we might want to set those aside for various reasons. So here's the the reasons he set up in 1 Corinthians 8. He said, sometimes you need to be willing to lay aside your freedoms for the good of others. And in particular, he was talking about weaker brothers and sisters in Christ there in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he said, sometimes we need to be willing to lay aside our freedoms for the good of the gospel. Sometimes it's just better for the advancement of the gospel if you don't exercise your freedoms or your liberties in Christ because it might be uh, confusing or it might be distracting to the person that you're trying to minister to. And then in chapter 10, he's really going to give us three principles. Uh, The first one, be willing to lay aside your freedom to avoid evil. Uh, Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean it doesn't get you closer to sin, and it certainly doesn't give you the freedom to sin. And so just a real concern there that we not uh, think somehow we have so much freedom in Christ that we can just go on sinning because we have freedom in Christ. We've been forgiven of all our sins and cleansed of all of our unrighteousness, so we just do whatever we want now, right? He's saying, no, let's not do that. He'll tell us that today. The other thing he's going to tell us today is to be willing to lay aside your freedom if it's not profitable or edifying. Sometimes it's, it's just not the right way. It's not the right time. But ultimately, what all of these, I think, stand on as a foundation is his conclusion of this section there in verse, uh, in chapter 10. Uh, that's this, be willing to lay aside your freedom for the glory of God. And that's ultimately, I think, the foundation on which all of these other, uh, the, these other um, principles are based. That ultimately, that's what he's trying to get us to understand is, yes, you have freedom in Jesus Christ. But sometimes it's better for God, it brings more glory to God if you don't operate in those freedoms. And so it really is a balance that he's trying to give him there. And I really appreciate the way Paul's teaching this. 
He could have easily answered the question, yes, you have the freedom to do that, but he's giving us a much fuller version of the answer so we can see where he gets his thoughts from, number one, but we can now see how these principles can be universally applied to all sorts of situations that we might run into in our own life where we have freedom in Jesus Christ. Are we willing from time to time to lay that down for the good of others, the good of the gospel, to avoid evil or sometimes even the appearance of evil and to avoid uh, situations that it just might not be the most edifying or profitable? And ultimately, are we willing to set it aside just because we want God to get all of the glory? So that's kind of the way we want to think through these things. Uh, In chapter 10, he's going to use uh, two very specific and interesting examples to bring his principles apart. Uh, And then ultimately, he's going to give us just some very quick if this, then this, if this, then this, to just kind of walk them through their specific question. Uh, But the things he's going to use to argue from first, in the beginning there of chapter 10, uh, through about verse 14, he's going to be arguing from the Old Testament examples. Uh, This is what the nation of Israel did, and this is why we're saying, yes, you have the freedom to do these things, but it turned out being bad for them to do certain things, and it led to them sinning, and we don't want you to do that. So he's going to use just example after example from the Old Testament, uh, and then he's going to use the picture of communion to discuss this issue, and that's when he'll finally get down to those kind of concluding thoughts there. So uh, let's pick it up. We're going to start here. Uh, We'll do just the first six verses here. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things. And so he goes to these Old Testament examples. He uses all these Old Testament pictures here, a number of them in there. He has the picture of the cloud, the picture of the sea. He has this picture of eating the spiritual food or drinking the spiritual drink. He takes all of these examples of these amazing things that the nation of Israel was able to experience. And he says, even though they experienced all these amazing provisions from God, Even though they had such wonderful gifts from God, they still managed to be displeasing to God because of the things they chose to do with those gifts, because of the way they kind of took those gifts for granted and ended up acting sinfully in the end. So uh, his first example there, the cloud and the sea, probably referring to Exodus chapter 13 and chapter 14. So in Exodus chapter 13 and 14, you see, number one, the nation of Israel is going to go through the sea. Remember, he parts the sea. The nation of Israel leaving Egypt goes through the sea to the, to the land that God was trying to get them to on the other side, and then the sea collapses on the Egyptian army that's following after them. So there's that first thing. He's like, these guys actually saw the sea parted. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine being the nation of Israel back there and actually seeing God open up the sea and letting you walk through it on dry land and then have it come crashing down on your enemies? These people actually saw the the pillar, the cloud. They actually saw, if you recall this from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 13 and 14, uh, the nation of Israel, as they were wandering in the wilderness, they weren't just wandering aimlessly. They were actually following a pillar of smoke 
that they would follow around and they would follow that wherever it went. That's how they knew where God was leading. Could you imagine if God was leading you that clearly in your life? What should I do today? Follow the cloud. Yes, sir. I know exactly where to go now. I'm going to follow the cloud. Like it was so clearly given to them. What an amazing gift that they received. Uh, then he talks about the spiritual food in Exodus chapter 16. That's talking about the manna and the quail in the wilderness. Remember, the people were complaining, oh man, back when we were slaves, at least they fed us. And God said, no problem. He made bread magically appear every morning for them. And he made quail. So they had quail sandwiches every day provided for them, right? Then they started to complain, Oh, there's no cucumbers. It's just crazy what they experienced. Imagine that type of supernatural, spiritual provision that they received from God. So powerful, so amazing what they were able to see. And if they got thirsty, it tells us here that there was this rock. And you can see this in a couple of places, but in Exodus chapter 17, uh, probably the primary one where you want to look at that, but there was this rock where the water would come out of the rock. Moses would touch the rock and the water would come out of the rock. It's also something that got Moses in trouble later, right? But this water would just come flowing out of it and they would have fresh water in, in the middle of the wilderness to drink. Supernatural provision. What they experienced was well beyond, I would say, what I've experienced in my life. Not that God hasn't provided for me in amazing and supernatural ways, but man, I would love to experience any of those things because every one of those things are super cool, right? I would love to experience those things. But don't think just because something amazing is happening, just because God is doing amazing things in your life, and that's really kind of a, a theme that you'll see woven through the book of 1 Corinthians, and that, that's this, that they were experiencing the amazing move of God there. Just because they experienced the amazing move of God doesn't mean they always made good decisions. His example here is the nation of Israel. And if you recall the way this worked out, the entire nation of Israel, after receiving all these wonderful things from God, still worshipped foreign idols, still offended God so much that that entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to just die in the wilderness there. God was, as it says here in verse 5, you can find this in the book of Numbers chapter 14 as well, uh, but uh, what he says here is, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, why did all of that stuff happen in the Old Testament, Paul says? Those things are examples to us so that we would not crave evil things. Now, how does this fit into his argument about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Yes, you have the, the, the right, the ability to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but just be warned, playing around with idolatry is not a good thing. So if you're eating meat sacrificed to idols just because that's the meat that's available, that's one thing. But if you're eating meat sacrificed to idols and you get so comfortable with that that you start to join in the celebrations of sacrificing meat to idols, join in their feasts and their festivals, their false god worship that they were invested in, in those circumstances it will lead you into a place of being displeasing to God. So don't allow your freedom to lead you to a place where you feel like you can sin. And he's going to continue to hammer this point here uh, in verse 7. He says, do not be idolaters 
as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Again, Paul goes back to illustrations of times that the nation of Israel did not act appropriately, that they were craving evil things, specifically that they were invested in idolatry. If you're not clear what idolatry is, it's simply the idea of worshiping false gods. And so in America, we have American Idol, right? Let's be careful. Like, let's not worship the people on the stage, right? Entertainment, one thing. Worship, a complete different thing. These folks, the people who experienced the all-consuming power of God, they experienced all the amazing provision of God, the spiritual, the supernatural, they still were worshiping rocks and sticks and trees, which is absurd when you think about it. They have the all-consuming, all-powerful God working on their behalf, But then they think to themselves, you know, it's just not enough. Maybe if we carved out our own golden calf, we could worship that as well. It's foolishness to think of it, right? It's just foolishness that it would get to that point. That's what it's referring there in verse 7, by the way. Uh, You can see if in your Bible, at least in mine, it's all in caps there. Uh, He's telling us that this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. This quote comes from Exodus chapter 32, verses 6 and 7, and it's describing that scene at the golden calf. So remember, Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. He's literally at the, at the throne of God at this mountain. He's able to see up into heaven. He's experiencing God in this amazing and powerful way. And you might recall this, that the first set of Ten Commandments, God wrote them out himself in stone. Now, Moses is going to break those in anger, and he's got to redo him himself. God's like, I did it for you once. You're on your own this time, right? Why was Moses so angry? Because he's up meeting with the God who rescued them from Egypt. The people are down building their own God. They're dancing. And, and, and the language there is, is strange to us. People sat down to eat and stood up to play. Uh, but essentially, it's describing this, this um, sexually charged dancing uh, around this golden calf. And what they're saying to this golden calf, behold, the God who rescued us from Egypt. It's idolatry. It's ridiculous that it would get to this point. Moses comes down. He's so angry, he breaks the Ten Commandments misplaced anger, he should have broken the people, right? They're the ones that are messed up. The law was good. The commandments were great. Why'd he break those? They needed those things. But they sinned nonetheless. And then in verse 8, not to act immorally if some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That comes from Numbers chapter 25. And then in verse 9, 
uh, don't try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You remember the serpents and the, uh, the staff that had the, the snake at the top of it. By the way, we get that picture for our medical logos when we have the staff with the snake wrapped around it. It goes back to this Old Testament story. And basically what it was saying there is if you see the staff and you look at the staff, all the snakes will leave you alone. If you don't do the thing that God has asked you to do, the snakes will kill you. This is a very simple idea. It's a very easy visual way for them to trust in the word of God. God said, do this. All I have to do is live by looking at that. If I do that, the snakes will leave. And of course, if all the people do that, then nobody's going to be harmed by it. But that's not what happened. Some of their people there decided to ignore the commandment of God, to look at the snake raised up in the wilderness. And in doing so, it brought them to their death. Jesus, by the way, is going to use that as an example of himself being lifted up on the cross and looking to him for our salvation. And all those who don't look to him for the salvation, they'll be destroyed. But Paul is just saying, look at the foolishness of this. Just look at the foolishness of these people who experienced God in such mighty and powerful ways. And yet they had to suffer through these things because of their disobedience, because they craved evil. They were always seeking something to worship, but it wasn't always God. And then in verse 10, it talks about a time in Numbers chapter 16, where the people grumbled and God sent the destroyer to destroy them, which sounds pretty, uh, pretty cool, actually. The destroyer. I think a great comic book hero, the destroyer, sent by God to destroy the grumblers. Use that on your children at bedtime. You know, just, you know, when God's children grumbled, he sent the destroyer to destroy them. Just see how that goes. <laughs> that and other parenting advice I give should probably be ignored. <laughs> but verse 11 uh, makes a similar point as verse 6. All of these things happened as an example. They were written for our instruction. Verse 12, here's the instruction. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What Paul was concerned about is that they would stand so strong on the freedoms that they've received in Jesus Christ that in pride they would walk themselves right into sin. And he goes back to the examples of the Old Testament. If anybody should have had religious pride, it should have been the Jews that were rescued from slavery and bondage in Egypt, walked through the sea, followed the cloud, saw the glowing face of Moses, received the law from God, heard the voice of God, had daily food provided specifically by God, and yet they still continued to crave evil things. Paul says, is this question really about meat sacrifice to idols? Or is there just some part of you that wants to take part in the festivals? Is there just some part of you that kind of misses the worship that you had before the gospel was preached to you? Take heed so that you don't fall. I want to show just real quick, though, with these two examples. Uh, there's more to come here about this concept. But I want to show from these two examples something that's very important uh, for how I like to study the Old Testament in particular, but the Scripture in general. 
Um, Over the years, I've collected a set of verses that I use to run passages through to help me understand how to apply them, how to think through those passages. And these verses here are some of those verses. Uh, There's a number of verses, but these are the ones that I'd like to focus on. When I study the Old Testament, I look at verse 6 and verse 11 and 12, and I ask myself, what can I learn from their example? And so here we have in verse 6, these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things. So when I study out an Old Testament passage, I look at the examples of the people and I ask myself, am I being like them in any way by craving things that God would not desire for me to crave? And so I can look at their example and how that turned out for them and I could say that didn't go well for them when they craved evil things. And so now I look at my own life and say it's probably not going to go well for me. And it's almost like if you read the Old Testament, there's like hundreds of these examples it feels like where they craved the wrong thing. They craved something. They hungered for something other than God and the ultimate outcome was they were led into sin and then that sin led them to be uh, um, led God to be disappointed in them and in some cases to even bring about their actual destruction uh, the other one here it says a very similar thing these things were written as an example for our instruction and again the instruction would be that we not be so prideful that we walk into sin so I actually go through this and you can see kind of this tattered sticky note that I have in my Bible here And it just lists out a number of verses like that. The first one there is 1 Corinthians 6, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and then 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Uh, I also have the book of Hebrews chapter 11 written down because these were the examples of faith. So those are the good examples. Although they did all these things, it says they did these things by faith. And so it makes me ask the question, what are these people in the Old Testament doing by faith? And then what does that illustrate to me that I should be walking in faith? Uh, the Matthew chapter 22 uh, is another one that I use here, verse 37 through 40. Uh, that comes down to all the law and all the scripture stands on these two principles, love God and love my neighbor. So when I'm studying out the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, but all the Bible, I'll ask myself this question all the time. What is this passage telling me about loving God? And what is this passage teaching me about loving my neighbor? It just gives you just little simple ways to think through the passage. Second Timothy also 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Well, if I want to be adequately equipped for every good work, I need to go to the scriptures and say, what is this teaching me? What is this reproving me of or convicting me of? What is the correction that is offered there and how can this train me to do things? And if I do that, I will be adequately equipped for every good work. And by the way, in the Bible, my favorite word is the word adequate. Because all I ever want to do is if I could just be good enough, right? If I could just be a good enough pastor, if I could just be a good enough father, I'd just be a good enough husband. The word adequately equips me for everything that God has for me. And so you just take verses like that. I also like to look for uh, pictures of Jesus Christ. That one comes here in verse 4 of chapter 10. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now think about what Moses got in trouble. Moses got in trouble for. He struck the rock. The rock was a picture of Jesus Christ. He struck the rock. Again, Moses is doing damage to the wrong people. But he gets upset with the people and he destroys the picture that God's trying to give them 
of Jesus Christ as the one who gives a living water. What does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? He says, I will give you a, a living water. He does that on two different occasions. So there's very cool connections in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I look for those connections. Anyway, uh, just a side note as somebody who geeks out about studying the Bible. There you go. Uh, verses 13 and 14, pretty powerful verses uh, in the history of my Christian faith, but it goes back to these same principles of avoiding sin. Sometimes we set aside our freedoms to avoid sin. Verse 13 and 14, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Again, what's Paul's point? Can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Yes, but make sure you're fleeing idolatry. Make sure you're not using it because you crave evil things, right? Uh, what I love, though, is that promise there in verse 13. First of all, this, any temptation in your life is a common temptation. Somebody else has suffered through that temptation before you. This is a promise of God. If you're being tempted by something right now, you're not the only person to experience that. You're not alone in that experience. And I would say one of the people that was tempted is Jesus, who we're told in the scripture was tempted in every way. So Jesus, Jesus experienced every temptation in some way or some fashion or some form. There's a connection there. God understands that we are tempted and that it's common for us people to be tempted. It's something that's common. Our temptation is not unique. It's not something that nobody else has ever experienced. The second thing, though, that we want to remember is that God is faithful. And how is he faithful? He's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we were able now, that's a, a huge vote of confidence most of the time, right? He basically is saying, I know you well enough. This is a big temptation, but I know you can overcome this temptation. It's a big one. It's a biggie. I get it. And basically what I often say is, God, you have a little bit more confidence in me than I have in myself. But isn't that a powerful promise? That God knows there's a way of escape from temptation. It's always provided there. It says, not just that it's not beyond what you're able, but he's provided a way of escape also and all of that so that you're able to endure it. So we have this promise from God now that when you're tempted, it's not unique. In that temptation, God is still faithful. He's not allowing you to be tempted beyond what you're able. In every temptation, he's providing a way of escape and in every temptation, you can endure it. We need to be reminded of these things. Sheila and I used to have this taped on the uh, speedometer of our car, not so that we wouldn't speed. That's not a huge temptation for me. I use cruise control so I don't have to think, right? Anything I can automate, there you go, right? But it's right there where you glance every 10 seconds or so to check your speed. And right there as a reminder for us was this verse. And so for a couple of years while we were in college, that verse was just right there on my car. And it allowed me to just kind of remember and meditate on that concept as I'm doing a, a fairly mindless task. Maybe driving shouldn't be a mindless task, but it gets there eventually, right? Um, where you just kind of just do it automatically. You're not paying all that much attention unless something changes around you, right? But that idea was just to have that constantly in our mind, that temptation is not something new or unique. I think that's a powerful promise. Uh, I love here, though, he says there's a way of escape. 
And then he gives us the way of escape, I think, pretty clearly in verse 14. Flee, run, get out of there. You can see examples of that in in church history where people are just like, here's the temptation. You know what? I'm just going to get out of Dodge. I'm going to just run away from it. Sometimes that's the clearest way to get away from temptation. Just get as far away from it as possible. Put some distance, some miles between you and the temptation. Verse 15 now, he's going to switch his illustration. I think he's still making the same point that he doesn't want us to crave evil things, that he doesn't want us to, uh, to, to be invested in evil things. And so he's going to make this point now in a completely different way, though. He's going to use the picture of communion, this, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week. He's going to use that as a picture to show us why we have to be cautious when it comes to idolatry. So here's his explanation in verse 15. I speak as to wise men. Very complimentary right off the bat. You guys, I'm, I'm talking to you like you're grown-ups. I'm going to speak to you as if you're wise people. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? He's now going to use this as an illustration. And this is where I think he's moving from the place of, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, just don't join in the feast that's set aside to idols. There's a difference there. The leftovers, the table scraps, the things they couldn't give away, those things you can eat. The meat is not the issue. But you don't want to participate in their practice of worshiping idols. That's that dividing line. And so he illustrates it with two examples. First is communion. When we take communion, we're joining ourselves, we're sharing with the body of Jesus Christ. There's a sharing, there's a connection there. There's a real spiritual connection that happens when we take communion. It's more than just a reminder. It's a reminder that also connects us together with the greater body of Christ. He gives another example. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, when they offered sacrifices, those priests who brought the sacrifices, they ate of those sacrifices. That's how they were provided for. And in doing so, it linked them to the sacrifices. Well, he says, if that's true of those two things, if you participate in the worship of idols, you're linking yourself not just to the idols, but he says, and I think it's a powerful statement here, You're linking yourself to the demonic things that are behind those idols. I don't know if you've given much thought to that. But every God that is not the true God is likely the invention of man or of Satan. 
And sometimes those who feel like they're worshiping another God, apart from the God of Scripture, they actually are worshiping not gods, but demons. There's a demonic thing behind that. And again, we don't want to play around with those things. We just don't want to play around with those things. So if I could be more clear, and maybe I can offend some people today, I believe wholeheartedly that the gods of other religions are either made up or demonic. That's just the reality. Now, you can make your own list of other religions, but I would say they're demonically reinforced. Here's where I'll reinforce that, by the way. And this is, again, I I get in trouble over these things, uh, but sometimes it's okay. I truly believe that at the heart of Mormonism is demonic visions, angels of light, it says. And what does Paul say? If I or anyone or an angel of light appears to you and preaches a different gospel, it's demonic, it's false, it's dangerous, and it's just close enough, just close enough to draw your interest but it's just demonic enough to be a false god. And that's the reality of so many false religions. There's demonic things behind it, and we don't want to dabble with those things. We don't want to play those games. And we don't do this to shame people of other religions. It should be devastating to us that they've been deceived by the demonic that Satan is out to steal and kill and destroy them. It should be heartbreaking for us. We should flee from those things. And so here we see Paul making that illustration again. Can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Yes, but don't let that bleed over into celebrating the idols that the meat was sacrificed to. Don't dabble in those things. Again, meat sacrificed to idols isn't that big of a deal to us. When we go to the store, there's not like the section for organic, grain-fed, demon-sacrificed. Well, the demon-sacrificed is cheaper today. I guess we'll go with the demon-sacrificed. That's not what we're dealing with. But we will find ourselves in situations where there are things that, honest to goodness, we as Christians can partake in, There's just times that we should not. And so he's listed out all of those different times for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the purpose of avoiding evil. And now he's going to add another one here in verse 23 through 30 where he's going to get this new one here, this new principle. But he's going to add to us some examples of how that works out, which I think is helpful. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions uh, for conscience sake. But 
If anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And I mean, not your conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? And so here he's now going to make it very simple, I think. Again, the next principle here, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable or edifying. They don't always build up. There's times where there's things that you're allowed to do you just shouldn't do because it's not the best thing in that circumstance. Not all things are profitable. Not all things edify or build up. And so he gives some very specific examples. When you're shopping, don't ask questions. You want meat by meat. Who cares where it came from? That is not, by the way, a discussion of whether or not GMOs, non-GMOs. You decide all that stuff for health reasons. But on the spiritual side, he said, don't ask so many questions. You want meat by meat. If you get invited to somebody else's house and they're serving meat, just eat the meat. Don't ask so many questions. Just eat the meat. Enjoy the gift that they're giving to you. It's just a polite way to respond. But, and I've got all the buts circled in my Bible because this section here has so many of these exceptions that he's putting in here. But, if the person who brings you the meat says, hey, we've got some fine meat here today, sacrifice to Zeus, who wants chicken con Zeus today? In that situation, go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm idolatry free. I'm not going to take that. <laughs> In that situation, you would abstain from eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And he says for conscience sake, but he's clear here. It's not your conscience. You're free to eat anything that you give thanks for. It's for the sake of their conscience. So they're not stumbled. So they're not thinking that it's okay to worship God and worship idols. It's for their sake. Again, you're doing this for sake of somebody else because in this case, it wouldn't necessarily be the best idea. It wouldn't necessarily build them up. Uh, A pretty cool example of this, by the way, happened years and years ago, um, which means more than two years ago, but I can't remember how long ago, other than the fact that I wasn't living in Wyoming at the time. So it was that far ago. Um, But I was listening to Focus on the Family. You guys ever listen to that? They'd have these call-in programs well, somehow it got out that they were using AT&T as their phone provider. Oh my goodness, I can't believe they're using AT&T. Don't you know that AT&T supports this, 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 and this? And so there was this uproar amongst people that said, we're no longer going to send you money. We're just not going to send you any money more because you're using AT&T as your phone provider. So, focus on the family, thought this through, they came to this conclusion They went out on the air and they told everybody, we're going to switch phone providers because of your concerns. And we are not telling you who we're switching to. That's none of your business. (laughs) The the, the reason there was pretty obvious. Essentially, they're saying, you're right, this corporation, this organization is invested in some things that are not good. But the other problem they had is there's only a couple of telephone companies that can handle a big national program like that. They're very limited in what they can do. And so for conscience sake, they just decided not for their conscience, conscious, conscience, conscious and conscious, really close, not the same. For their conscience, but it was for the conscience of their listeners. The listeners don't need to be worried so much about all the details that are going on. All they wanted the listeners to hear is what message they were bringing apart. So they just kind of kept those things behind the scenes. Those things aren't important. But when it was brought to their attention, They said, okay, for conscience sake, even though they felt like they had the freedom to use one of the three telephone companies out there, they got rid of the one and moved on. 
It wasn't a big deal. It was just something that they just used, I think, some very good wisdom. Okay, this is destroying your conscience. We're going to step aside. But from now on, we just don't mention what companies we use. And I think in a similar sense, when I'm looking for plumbers, if I happen to know a Christian plumber, I'll call him. But if I don't know a Christian plumber, that's not my first question that I ask. I don't just say, hey, I need a plumber. What is your take on 1 Corinthians 10? No, my first question to a plumber is, can you get here now? Because if I need a plumber, it's already an emergency. I don't care what their doctrine is. If they show up and they start praying in front of my pipes, oh, to the great God of the plumbers, I bring this pipe before you today and ask for you to cleanse it of all unrighteousness. I say to them, whoa, not the kind of plumber I need. But I don't go out of my way to get into doctrinal discussions about who's doing my plumbing. I just need my pipes cleaned or fixed or whatever the deal is. Pretty simple, but very valuable, I think, advice. You have some freedoms there, but let's just make sure we're making good choices with those freedoms. And then I think whatever the ultimate principle that he's bringing about here is in verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they might be saved. I think the ultimate principle on which all the other principles stand is this one. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now that might sound like a concept that you've heard before, but let's make sure we understand what does it mean to do something to the glory of God? You do it in such a way that he's the one that people praise, that he's the one who gets the glory, that he's the one that people worship, that he's the one that people brag about. You're drawing all the attention to him, not to yourself. And, and this is a danger, by the way. Now, I can just tell you, as somebody who's preached a long time, it's very easy to step over that line and take a sermon from being about the things of God to being about yourself. And I know I've done that a number of times, sometimes to some people's great offense. It's very easy to get into that pattern where you just sneak over here. But our goal should be, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, some of you may have heard this before, but what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Westminster Catechism and other catechisms follow a similar pattern there. Ultimately, that's the question of our life. Whatever we do should be done for the purpose of bringing all the glory, all the worship, all the praise, all the attention, all the bragging rights towards God. I think why Paul brings this up here is it seems like the church in Corinth was bragging about their freedoms in Jesus Christ, was bragging about their freedoms, spiritual freedoms that they had. And what it became was, look at us, look what we can do. Like a two-year-old learning to walk. Look at me, I can walk. Like a 10-year-old putting their pants on the right direction. Look at me, I got my pants on right. 
And sometimes as Christians, we're like, look at me, look what I can eat. Look at me, look what I can drink. And we go through all those things and we in doing that draw attention to, look at me. Now you can say the exact same things, but you say, look at what God has given me. Look at what God has taught me. Look at what God has allowed me to enjoy. Look at God, look at God, look at God. Do all things to the glory of God. By the way, if you're trying to make important and difficult decisions, I think one of the first and most important questions you can ask yourself is in this decision, how can I best glorify God? I think sometimes we, f- we skip that step and we just jump down to what would be best for me? Sometimes we just ask the question, what would best glorify God? What would best make people appreciate God in this circumstance right now? Whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And I think that's the principle that Paul's been trying to bring across. And he closes it out by saying, don't give offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. He says, I try to please all men in all things. I'm not seeking my own benefit. I'm seeking the benefit of others that they might get saved. This is what's important about this. People don't get saved because you're so great. People don't get saved because you have so much freedom. People get saved because God is great. It was his kindness that led us to repentance. It was Jesus' death that cleansed us of all sin and gave us freedom. It's because God is glorious that people get saved. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I uh, first would say this, uh, Lord, for all the times and any times that I have preached myself instead of preaching you, drawn more attention to myself than I've drawn to you, Lord, I would pray that you would forgive me of those things, that you would cleanse me of that unrighteousness. Father, that you would help people to forgive and maybe even forget some of those those poor examples that I've set. Lord, I pray uh, that I would do a better job and that all of us would do a better job of looking to the examples of the past as examples of not craving evil, of seeing where that leads, of looking at the examples of the past for our own instruction, that we wouldn't get so prideful that we think we're the ones that are standing and everybody else is a mess. Father, I pray that we would be willing to surrender pretty much anything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of avoiding sin. Father, for the sake of doing the thing that is best in that moment, for your kingdom, and ultimately, Father, for glorifying you in all that we do and say. Lord, my prayer is that at the end of the day, as we leave, people will say to themselves, man, we serve a great God. Father, because of that, we want to worship you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.